It's six o'clock in the morning, and I'm standing next to a short tarmac runway in Belchase, Louisiana, just across the Mississippi River from New Orleans. It's a pretty grueling flight. Okay. So uh, most people that we brought up get sick. If you get sick, just, just use the bag and we're, we're good to go. That's Todd Baker. He and Matt Weigel are the two state biologists I've been talking to for months, begging them to take me with them to the most remote corner of Louisiana. They fly there weekly as part of their job to help save a rapidly disappearing coast. But very few others have ever been. Todd's prepping me for the flight. Well, we're going to Chandler Islands, which is about 22 miles south of Gulfport, Mississippi, as the crow flies, or as the seaplane flies. The Chandeleurs. I've heard about these isolated islands for years, and always in almost mystical terms. The crescent-shaped string of islands loosely hugging the toe of Louisiana's boot aren't easy to get to. You either need hours across the open gulf by boat, or, if you're lucky like I am today, by seaplane. So, despite the apparently high probability I'm about to need a barf bag, I am feeling very lucky. Set aside primarily for birds, and you're going to see plenty of those today, too. The chandeliers are a globally important bird habitat, and I'm hoping I'll get to see some of the rare birds that nest here, like the small piping plovers or the bright yellow-beaked least terns. But the real reason I'm heading out to these barrier islands is in the hopes of seeing an even rarer creature one that hadn't been seen anywhere on the shores of Louisiana in over 75 years, until last summer. Here's Matt. Last year, last year was a, you know, a surprise for a lot of folks. Including for Matt and Todd, the ones who actually made the shocking discovery. And I'm hoping today may be another lucky day. We load up the Kodiak 100 amphibious plane with our gear and take off, following the Mississippi River south. Finally, I see an island on the horizon. The chandeliers. We're all scanning the beach, looking, hoping. Then Todd sees something. What looks like tire tracks across the sand below. I'm Carlisle Calhoun, and you're listening to Sea Change. Those weren't actual tire tracks we saw from the plane. Vehicles aren't allowed on the wilderness-protected chandelier islands, even if they could get there. They're actually a sign of a mysterious sea creature, the Kemp's Ridley sea turtle. Not only is this species extremely rare, it's also the most endangered sea turtle in the entire world. Kemp's were named after a Key West naturalist who helped discover the turtle back in 1906. In recent decades though, it's earned another nickname, the heartbreak turtle, because every time its population starts to rebound, some other devastating threat appears, but now, there may be hope that this time will be different, that our hearts won't once again be broken. I'm hoping to see a Kemp's up close on the island, but first I want to talk to someone who's seen a lot of them. Kemp's Ridley sea turtle hatchlings start out as a black to charcoal gray color. They're about the size of a silver dollar. This is Dr. Donna Shaver, the world's top Kemp's Ridley sea turtle expert. She's in her early 60s with long blonde hair. She looks like she was meant to spend her life on the beach. As these little hatchlings swim away from the shoreline, they swim vigorously for the first few days of life. The babies then drift with the currents, snacking on seaweed and crabs. When they reach about yearlings, 
they start to get this gray olive green coloring on top. Then when they reach adulthood at about two and a half feet long, they're the smallest and the lightest of the sea turtles. They're beautiful. All sea turtles are endangered, but Kim's Ridleys are by far the most at risk and the most mysterious. At least they are to us humans, trying to understand a creature that's been on this earth for millions of years. Kemp's mostly live in the Gulf of Mexico, but when the young go exploring, they can be seen paddling along the East Coast, as far north as Nova Scotia, way before Matt and Todd saw Kemp's on the chandeliers, before Kemp's Ridleys were nicknamed the heartbreak turtle, before they were listed as an endangered species, before there was even an Endangered Species Act. There were a lot of Kemp's, but still, very little was known about them. Many didn't even think it was a distinct species. While people had seen plenty of other sea turtle species nesting, the same wasn't true for Kemp's. These turtles had scientists totally baffled. And there was one big question everyone was asking. Where were these mysterious little turtles coming from? Where were their nests? There was this scientist, Archie Carr. And if anyone was going to get to the bottom of this question, it was the guy known as Turtle Man. He was obsessed with solving what he called the riddle of the Ridley. When Archie Carr was doing his work, the species was very poorly known, and some hypothesized it might even be a hybrid. They didn't know where the main nesting beach was located. Carr spent two decades searching the Caribbean far and wide for where Kemp's were nesting. But even Turtle Man couldn't solve the riddle. It wasn't until the 60s that another scientist found this old film shot decades before in Mexico. The film shows tens of thousands of Mama Kemp's Ridley sea turtles, a solid mile of them, crawling up the beach and nesting. It was the most turtle eggs scientists had ever seen in one place. They concluded this must be it, the main nesting beach Turtle Man had been searching for, where the vast majority of baby Kemp's were born. And all this was happening on this one beach on the eastern coast of Mexico this place called Rancho Nuevo. So one mystery was solved, but there was something else the film showed, this incredible and unique way Kemp's nest. They tend to nest in these synchronous emergences at the same time, called arribadas. Arribadas, Spanish for arrival, meaning the arrival of a mass synchronized nesting. You see, the reason that old film was able to show 40,000 turtles on one day on one beach is because Ridleys, unlike other sea turtles, often nest together as a big group. The mama turtles begin gathering offshore and then swim into the beach altogether to lay their eggs. We still don't know why they do this. Another one of their mysteries is thought that perhaps because Kemp's are so small, it's a safety in numbers kind of thing. But here's the problem. While scientists were amazed to learn about the Arabadas, there was another group of people who were equally interested in the Kemp's nesting behavior, but for a very different reason. Donna says in that old film, You could see nest after nest being poached and the eggs taken and mounted up so that they could be carted off and then sold as a supposed aphrodisiac. Turns out, all this synchronicity also made these turtles super vulnerable to a human threat, poachers. 
and they were stealing Kemp's eggs by the truckful. Because Kemp's lay their eggs at the same time, poachers don't have to sit around waiting for the occasional lone nesting female before stealing her hundred or so eggs. Instead, a fortune arrives in a day. When biologists in Mexico started learning about that nesting beach, they sent armed Marines there to protect the nesting turtles and the eggs. They took it very seriously. The Mexican forces were ordered to shoot first and ask questions later if poaching was suspected. But turtle numbers continued to freefall, thanks to poachers stealing babies and dying after getting tangled in fishing gear. Kemp's were declared an endangered species in 1970. This species was almost driven to extinction in one human generation. The population plummeted. We were so close to losing them entirely. By 1985, there were only 250 mature female turtles left on the planet. Scientists knew more had to be done for this species to survive. American scientists decided they would join forces with their Mexican colleagues to try to save this beloved sea turtle. And these scientists decided to try something that had never been tried. Start a new nesting colony elsewhere, somewhere safe from the poachers. But how could they do it? And where? Enter budding young scientist Donna Shaver. At the moment Kemp's Ridley's almost disappeared forever, Donna found her calling. I decided right then I was going to dedicate my career to trying to help save the Kemp's Ridley turtle. Her PhD advisor said it was a foolish move, that Kemp's were doomed. But she believed something that almost no one else believed in, that the tiniest sea turtles could be saved from extinction. I knew it would require sacrifices. I, I knew that it would mean I couldn't have the normal kind of life where you go out to lunch with the ladies, you go get your hair done at the hairdresser, you have a children. I wasn't able to do all that. Instead, since 1980, Donna's life's work has been trying to start a new colony of Kemp's. And the spot that was chosen for this experiment was Padre Island National Seashore in Texas. Beaches and sea turtles are deeply connected, and the specific beach where a sea turtle is born is particularly important. It's known much better now, but it was thought then that turtles go back to the beach where they were born to lay their own eggs. But scientists didn't know exactly how or what the mechanism was. Now we know that there's uh, navigation in relation to the Earth's magnetic field, and that may be important in bringing them back. If you spend any time with scientists talking about sea turtles, they use this word a lot, imprinting. The full name for it is geomagnetic imprinting. Sea turtles' first memories are imprinted with a magnetic map of the sandy beach where they're born, like a GPS for turtles. Then, more than a decade later, females access their stored map to navigate through the ocean back home to have their own babies. I mean, how amazing is that? So how could this experiment work? If all these baby Kemp's turtles are hardwired to return to Mexico, how can scientists start a new colony in Texas? One that these turtles, once they grow up, would eventually return to. The scientists came up with a plan, a complicated plan. We sent down Padral and sand for those eggs to be collected, to, to be packed in, to come back to Padre Island, where they are cared for until hatching. 
The eggs sit in an incubation facility until they're ready to hatch. Then... We took them down to the beach, released them, allowed them to crawl down the beach so they get this exposure to the Padron Beach as hatchlings. So we tried to imprint turtles to Padre Island in hopes that they would return there to nest. Then the tiny turtles were taken back to the lab until they grew larger. Until finally, finally they were released one by one. And the young Kemp's swam out into the Gulf. Biologists did not know if any of them would even survive. Donna was in charge of looking for the miracle. She headed up kind of a bootstrap operation. And for years... She and a squad of turtle-loving volunteers patrolled Padre Island Beach, keeping watch for any returning turtles. But with, with no money, no vehicles, nothing. So we tried to do the best we could to look year after year. And I finally, you know, I know that they started to give up hope and think it was Linus in the pumpkin patch. You know, in Charlie Brown, when Linus waits all by himself in the pumpkin patch, waiting on the arrival of the mythical great pumpkin while everyone else is trick-or-treating. You must be crazy. When are you going to stop believing in something that isn't true? But finally, in 1996, it happened. I'm the one who didn't give up, I believed. And yet when I saw the first one brushed off the top shell, saw the living tag, wet it, looked at it again, and I said, oh my God, this is what we've been waiting for all these years. I was so overjoyed. I jumped up and down and jumped up and down and hugged the people that were with me. Incredibly, the desperate experiment worked. A decade after releasing these turtles as babies, two now grown-up camps had come back here to their adopted home. And there's now a second nesting colony on Padre Island. And every year, with more baby camps making it to adulthood to reproduce and also new technology to keep turtles out of fishing nets, the species started recovering. While Donna and her scientist friends were lovingly trying to recolonize the turtles one by one on the beach, another kind of man-made challenge was on the horizon, in the deep water. 21 in the deep water horizon, on fire. Flying low on the backside of the Chandelier Islands, the Kodiak lands in shallow water. Matt, Todd, and I all grab our backpacks loaded down with gear and climb out of the plane to begin our search for the elusive Kemp's. We all hop off the plane into thigh-deep water and wade through a meadow of seagrass, then through sharp blades of marsh, and eventually climb up onto dry land, a pristine island. No trace of humans except for us in the plane. But that wasn't the case back in 2010 when the BP Deepwater Horizon rig exploded, releasing an ungodly amount of oil into the Gulf of Mexico. At the time, Matt, the state biologist, managed Louisiana's wildlife and fisheries response to the spill. It was was a sad time and it was a scary time because, you know, for for such a long time, the the well wasn't controlled. We didn't know when it was going to end, you know. We didn't know if it was going to end. And we were working 12, 13, 14, 15, 16-hour days Oil was everywhere, along the coast, in the marshes, in the mangroves. Land was eroded, habitat was lost. And Matt and Todd were both working like crazy to help save wildlife from the largest oil spill of all time. These barrier islands, the chandeliers, 
were among the hardest hit spots anywhere. And Kemp's Ridleys were among the hardest hit species. You see, the chandeliers that jut into the Gulf, well, they happen to be on the edge of the Kemp's Ridley's favorite feeding ground, where young Kemp's loved to hang out in the sargassum seaweed. It was estimated that almost half a million sea turtles were exposed to oil during the spill, and over half of those were Kemp's Ridley's. In total, well over 100,000 young sea turtles died. Before the spill, Kemp's numbers were recovering. But in the years following the BP disaster, their population again began to fall. But last summer, hope returned. In July of 2022, more than 10 years after the BP oil spill, Todd and Matt were flying to the Chandeliers to survey birds when they spotted those now familiar tire track-like marks in the sand from above, also known as crawls. They suspected belonged to a sea turtle that found its way back to these battered islands. What they found was even more astounding because when they followed some tracks back to the edge of a dune, they didn't just see any baby sea turtle, but the most endangered, a baby Kemp's Ridley. Matt and Todd were high-fiving. They couldn't believe it, and neither could anyone else. So far, Matt and Todd have confirmed 13 nests this year, and today, we're hoping to find more of them. I've got some VHF radios, and I've got one in my backpack. Okay. When we split from you, I'll put, turn this on 10. Okay. So just in, case, just in case we need to talk. Then, off in the distance, we finally see them. Looks like there may be something right there. We follow the crawls across the beach and back onto the edge of the dunes, where Todd and Matt start looking for what's called a body pit. It's the area of sand the turtle clears before using her flippers to dig an egg chamber, where she'll lay her eggs. Todd and Matt measure the turtle crawl length and width and add it to the chart on their clipboards. We'll name this one Disappointment Nest. After 45 minutes of swatting mosquitoes and searching the dunes, no dice. It's a false crawl, meaning the mama turtle never made a nest. So in this case, she thought she found a spot, and for whatever reason, it wasn't good enough, and she went back out to the Gulf. So she'll be back, though, hopefully anyway. So. It might seem like we're just these turtle lovers on a turtle safari, but Todd and Matt are actually here to gather data. They've been flying out here weekly since the beginning of nesting season in May in an effort to prove these endangered turtles are indeed back on the chandeliers. Because even as these islands become a haven for endangered turtles, another heartbreak could be looming. The chandeliers in coastal Louisiana are disappearing. We're losing land here at one of the fastest rates on Earth for a whole bunch of reasons, almost all of them due to us humans. If there's a silver lining to the Deepwater Horizon disaster, it's this. Eventually, BP was forced to pay up for its environmental crimes. Just under $9 billion of the $20 billion settlement are set aside for restoration of the Gulf Coast, which means there might be money to restore these islands and help these turtles. That's only if Todd, who works for the Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority, can convince those holding the purse strings that these wild barrier islands inhabited only by birds and seagrass and sea turtles, are worth saving. I asked Todd later what his elevator pitch for the islands is. Because while $9 billion might sound like a lot of money, down here in the Gulf, there are countless places that need restoring. And there's a lot of competition and heated debate 
over who, what, and where deserves that restoration money. Todd's hoping for over $200 million, enough to pay for a massive and delicate construction project to build back up these islands, make them resilient, so that they too can survive. But will the chandeliers get it? So we don't really know at this point. We're in the data collection mode. We don't have a single dime for construction just yet. Mother Nature's built perfect islands for these um, turtles. And what we want to do is provide more fuel to Mother Nature to continue to do what she's been doing for a long time. Back out on the beach, we approach crawl number 17, according to Matt's chart, which they discovered in late May. And this is the species we, we believe it to be. We believe it's a Kemp's. And then also our earliest hatch date. On this one's July 8th. So any day now, we'll have hatchlings emerging. And those baby Kemp's Ridley turtles are the ones that will hatch any day now. They're imprinting on this beach. It will be years before Todd finds out whether his campaign to win BP settlement funds for the chandeliers is successful. Then maybe, just maybe, these islands will be restored in a meaningful enough way to withstand the coming hurricanes and sea level rise. 13 turtle nests is a lot, when until last summer, people expected none, but it's really not that many. Flying back on the seaplane, I was bummed not to see any kemps, not to experience this exciting return of an ancient endangered species. But I have to remember to temper my expectations. I mean, even turtle expert Donna Shaver scoured the beach for a decade before she got the chance to see a returning kemps. She didn't give up hope. And of course, the important thing is that Kemp's Ridleys have come back to Padre Island and to the Chandeliers. But anyone who knows the story of the heartbreak turtle knows you have to remain vigilant. Because its species is not fully recovered yet. We've made strides, but it's still the most critically endangered sea turtle species. There's still more that must be done. And people that want to take their foot off the pedal and move on to other things, because this has been going on a long time. We need you. We need you to hang in there because we're not there yet. It's one of God's creatures. And who are we to say which one comes and which one goes and which one we should give up on? I got an email from Matt and Todd the other day. They told me they didn't find any more nests after our expedition together. Their final count this summer was 13. But unfortunately, many of them didn't hatch. And Matt and Dodd don't know why. They're still analyzing the data, but they think this year's record-breaking heat and drought may have played a role. Back home in New Orleans, I see our own changing habitat. The threats to people in southern Louisiana that are maybe not so different from the ones the Kemp's are facing just offshore. Donna has a favorite quote, and part of it reads, In the end, we will conserve only what we love. We will love only what we understand. Donna, Todd, and Matt, and many others are still trying to understand the riddles of the Kemp's Ridley sea turtles. And we're all trying to understand what climate change means for us all. And I wonder if we choose to also protect the wild places where we don't live and the species beyond ourselves, then maybe there's hope. And maybe our hearts won't have to break again at least not for these tiny turtles. Thanks for listening to Sea Change. This episode was reported and hosted by me, Carlisle Calhoun. Editing help was provided by Nora Sachs, Garrett Hazelwood, and Hallie Parker. Our sound designer is Maddie Zampanti. 
Sea Change is a WWNO and WRKF production. We're a part of the NPR Podcast Network and distributed by PRX. Sea Change is made possible with major support from the Gulf Research Program of the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. WWNO's Coastal Desk is supported by the Walton Family Foundation, the Moreau Foundation, and the Greater New Orleans Foundation. See you all in two weeks.